All right, we'll try that again. Good morning, everyone. Glad to have everyone who's with us. If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, uh, we're going to be in the last two-thirds of chapter 1 today, starting at about verse 12 in just a moment. Uh, as we were getting a little bit of a late start, uh, I, was, I was thinking as I was coming up here and not being prepared with the microphone as well as I should be that I'd rather have a situation where we all have to quiet down as opposed to no one wants to talk to each other when you see each other on the Lord's Day. So that's a good thing that we are excited to greet each other and that we are excited about seeing each other after a few days of not being together. Uh, last week we began our study of the book of Philippians and we really focused on the introduction, we really focused on the salutation, and we also did a little bit of background work with Acts 16 and Acts chapter 28. We said that the church at Philippi and Paul share a special relationship and that this is a rather optimistic and upbeat letter. Doesn't mean that the church at Philippi was perfect, nor does it mean that every Christian there was doing everything that he or she needed to do. And in fact, when we get into the last uh, part of the book of Philippians, we'll see uh, some of the curtains pulled back and we can see a little bit of a glimpse as to maybe some of the issues that were going on while uh, we read in chapter 4. Glad you're here. And we are going to begin here in just a moment. Let's take a moment together and pray, and uh, then we'll begin. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize you as our creator and as our God, the one who spoke into existence this world and who sustains our very lives. We pray your blessings on our study together today. We pray for the children's classes, for those that are very, very young, who are still even learning to talk, that they will know from their first words, words about you, your word, and your salvation, all the way up to those who are in their teenage years, bless them as well. Bless the teachers, bless our time together today in this study. Thank you, Father, for your word being preserved for thousands of years so that we can read from it, understand it, apply it, and we pray your blessings on our study today. Thank you for Jesus and for the salvation that we enjoy through him. It's in him we pray. Amen. I did not mention last week that a nickname for the book of Philippians is Paul's love letter. And there are a couple of letters that you could, I guess all of his letters are love letters. Because any time that Paul was writing to one of his recipients, whether it be an individual church multiple churches or individuals. His motivation was always from love. Yet again, the special relationship that he enjoyed with the church at Philippi is what we are focusing on today. So uh, as we did last week, your comments, your questions are worthwhile and we'll be glad to take those. Uh, we're gonna go through the text and spend the first uh, probably 25 to 30 minutes just going through the text. And then we're going to spend the last, oh, 10 minutes or so of our time looking at some key applications. Um, probably more on the text this week than we did last week, and that's because we're covering twice as much material. So let's look at uh, verses 12 through uh, 30 today. And rather than reading uh, 12 through 30 all at once, I want to read it in sections. And I want to start in verses 12, 13, and 14. So we'll read 
two, three, four verses at a time. We'll pause, make some observations, open it up for comments, then go to our next two, three, four verses. But let's start here, beginning in verse 12, where he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I didn't put this on the screen, but one of the things that I was thinking about, uh, we had a study last night for uh, some of the younger people, and uh, we were talking about the term brethren. And brethren is kind of this very important word, not kind of, it is a very important word because it's the word that identifies us as part of the spiritual family to which we have been adopted and which we belong. And he starts in verse 12 by saying, but I want you to know, comma, brethren. And then he ends the sentence in verse 14 by saying, most of the brethren in the Lord. Uh, and so we might want to talk about that here in just a second. But I want us to start with this phrase that he uses here, where he uses the phrase furtherance of the gospel, that the things have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. What are the things that happened to Paul that he's referring to? And it could be a, a number of different things. Yes, Brother David. Well, he's a prisoner, so okay. to a large extent... The gospel message may have been sort of closed to the Roman army and to the royal palace. And Absolutely. in particular, you know, of course, Caesar's household. And toward the end of Philippians, we see that there are actually saints within Caesar's household. Excellent observation. So there are things that have happened to Paul that he did not initially plan for. You don't plan to go to prison, especially under the circumstances that he did. Remember that he had wanted to go to Rome for quite some time. And David talked about that a great deal in his uh, overview of Acts, uh, which, David, you weren't here. We gave you compliments, and everyone agreed that you did a great job in your, in your recent class. Um, but he wanted to go to Rome. He finally gets to go to Rome, but he goes, as we read in Acts 27 and 28, as a prisoner. And he says, these things that happened to me, rather than being a hindrance to the gospel message, are actually going to help me teach the gospel message. Uh, it reminds me of a woman who was an older woman, uh, the story goes, who was pulled over a few years ago uh, for going just a little bit too fast. Maybe she was from Pasadena. A few of you will get that joke. Um, it's okay, good. All right. But she was going a little bit too fast, and she got pulled over. And she says, perfect, this is my opportunity. And so she says, I'm gonna use this for the furtherance of the gospel. So I believe it's a true story from what I've heard. She ended up engaging in a conversation about spiritual things with the police officer, invited the police officer to study or to go to services or to, to talk more, gave her uh, her number. Of course, she's, he's gonna have all that information as well, uh, very conveniently written down. <laughs> And he ended up becoming a Christian as a result of that woman being persistent and furthering the gospel in a difficult situation. So most of us, uh, not that 
anybody in here has ever been pulled over. But most of us, that's not what we're thinking uh, at that particular time when we see those lights. Um, But furtherance of the gospel. I put up there, consider chapter 4, verse 11. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now, we'll talk about that in more detail in about three weeks. But Paul says, if I'm in prison, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to teach. We see evidence of that all the way back in the book of Acts when he and Silas were imprisoned at Philippi. And so things have come full circle in a way where now he's writing from prison, not in Philippi, but he's writing to the Philippians along with his other prison epistles that we're talking about in the course of this quarter. And he says, I'm going to use this to further the gospel. Now, David hinted at this. Uh, The New King James uses the phrase, verse 13, that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. Does anybody have anything different than uh, the palace guard phrase? Imperial guard is is a phrase. Yes, Linda? Praetorium Praetorium is the more Romanesque term, right? Um, Absolutely. So these were soldiers that not only were told historically were there to guard Paul and to secure the prison area, but on some occasions, if not at all times, some prisoners were actually chained to Paul. So that if Paul tries to escape, or any prisoner tries to escape for that matter, it would be impossible for them to do so without taking with them, dragging with them the other person or persons attached to them. I came across this phrase that Paul was wanting to go into all the world and preach the gospel because that's what Jesus told him to do in Matthew 28. But he was unable to do that because he was limited in his freedoms. Although he did have some freedoms, Acts 28 verses 28 through 31, right? But he was limited. And so instead, God brought the world to Paul. And I I thought that was neat that it, it... God is always going to bring us the world, no matter what the circumstance is. I have known how to be abased. I have known how to abound. I am ready for any circumstance that comes my way. Uh, which is also why he's going to talk about in verses 19, 20, 21. If I live, great. If I die, great. I'm okay with whatever happens because if I live, I'm going to continue doing the job of preaching the gospel because that is who I am. Um, What happened to the saints in Rome as a result, David hinted at this, as a result of what Paul is saying here in verses 12, 13, and 14? What What was the effect on the Christians in Rome? Instilled courage. Absolutely. That's the big word I was looking for, is that they were instilled courage. I came across this statement as well just last week. Courage is contagious as much as fear is contagious. I thought that was kind of neat as well, so I wanted to put that up there. Courage is just as contagious as fear. So these Roman saints are encouraged by Paul's boldness. So you might be a Christian with the church that meets in Rome or around Rome, and you might feel bad about Paul, one of your fellow soldiers in the kingdom being detained say well he's not going to be able to go and 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 do the great commission paul says watch this i'm going to do it while sitting here 
I'll do it while chained here. I'll do it while I'm imprisoned here because nothing's going to stop me. Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that will stop me from preaching. Okay? Uh, anything else on verses 12 through 14 before we jump down to verse 15? Yes, David? About the uh, courage being contagious. And, you know, a, a number of Christians faced death for the cause of Christ. And when they faced it boldly to the glory of God and to the glory of Jesus, they became martyrs after mm -hmm. their death. And in, in, in many cases had a much greater effect on Absolutely. the Christian population just because of that boldness and the courage right. that they faced death. Right. You think about Stephen as kind of one of the perfect examples of that. You think about James, uh, who was killed by Herod. Think about the people that in, if you're familiar with outside secular histories or other historians' work, there's a lot to be said for the way that the apostles likely died. Uh, and Hebrews 11 talks about individuals being sawn in two. Granted, maybe going back older than that. Uh, all right, let's go to verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from selfish ambition. I'm sorry. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Verse 16, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. This is a section that has always kind of uh, made me ponder a little bit because I, I'll be honest with you, uh, not that I wouldn't be honest with you, but uh, funny how we say those things, uh, but it, it kind of struck me as a little bit confusing. This was a passage that I had to really kind of dig into and think about, and, I'm, and maybe we can shed some light on it and I can be even more clear-headed, but I'm more clear-headed now than I'd ever been before. Um, I want to start with this question. Who was it that was preaching from envy and strife? And there may be more than one way to answer this. I think there's probably a couple of ways of answering this. Who is, who is involved in preaching from envy and strife? What about the Judaizing? That was one of the first things that came to mind for me was Judaizing teachers that, uh, in fact, in the outline that uh, you have, that's one of the, the key points is that, that Jason had kind of uh, written out for us. So we know that one of Paul's greatest um, obstacles was dealing with Judaizing teachers. Maybe not so much here in the book of Philippians, but certainly in some of his other books. What else? Who else? Yeah, David? I don't know if you're looking for a specific name, but um, no. But I can think of some. Even even false teachers tended to teach a lot of truth. It was a little bit of error that was included. Yeah. It was so dangerous, and so really, truth is truth, no matter who is 
telling it or what the motives are. Absolutely, right. Uh, I'm reminded of that phrase in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, for this conduct is not even named among the Gentiles. And I've always thought about that as being interesting where he says, the Gentiles are getting it wrong. Those who are heathen are getting it wrong. Those who teach falsely are teaching falsely. But they would not even adopt this practice. They would even understand that this is not right and that this is wrong. Uh, I, I came up with, with two things uh, here. Those who question his authority. Now, this goes back to our study in 2 Corinthians that we just finished. And Brian talked about this about four weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, those are people that are going to plague Paul and where he's going to have to defend his apostleship. Interestingly enough, and I was talking about this with Brian just last night, the book of Philippians, in its introduction, I didn't mention this, but you'll notice where it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Did you notice what Paul did not say at the outset of his letter to the church at Philippi? He did not say Paul, comma, and apostle, comma. And that's not because he was ashamed of his apostleship, but it was because apparently it seems that he didn't have to defend it in the way that he would have to defend it to places like Corinth uh, or other churches. So those who questioned his authority. The other thing is, I, this was kind of a thought that saints in pre-Paul Rome, so the, the Christians who had been popular teaching before Paul got to Rome may and that may be the optimum word, may be offended by Paul's popularity. And Paul, you remember, when he talked to the church at Corinth, he says, it is not about me or about my popularity. It is not because I taught you or that Peter taught you or whatever the case may be. He says, the fact that you are converts to Jesus Christ, that's what matters the most. We are not converts to one preacher, to one elder, to one congregation uh, we are converts to Jesus the Christ. Yeah, Brother John. Could have been a situation a little bit like Simon the sorcerer. He envied Peter and John's ability to pass on spiritual gifts to, uh, to others. It could have been anybody there at Philippi that saw Paul's fame, I guess, and how people looked up to him. So, boy, I'd like a little bit of that. So, Absolutely. So That's they a would great preach example. out of that motive rather than really just loving souls, but still they preach the gospel. Very true. Yeah, someone made the reference to false apostles. We know that Paul uh, wrote to Timothy, he said, in latter days, these false apostles, these people who are going to claim authority or people who are going to claim that they've got the truth um, are all going to come along and create problems. Okay, um, regarding the concept of preaching from self am selfish ambition, um, here's my question. Can it happen today? And I mean, it's an obvious yes. You know, I'm not asking difficult questions today. Um, but how? How can a person preach or teach from selfish ambition today? We've kind of highlighted it a little bit, but I want to go just a little bit further. Yeah, Brother David? If the reason you're doing it is for money and you're just jumping from one location to another, kind of stair-stepping your way up to higher, higher and higher salaries. Correct. Right. Right. So if you're just doing it for the financial gain, um, that's not a good reason. Absolutely. Brings me back to our men's study. Uh, Miss Diana over there in the corner. While we're getting there, it brings me back to our men's study and our conversation. 
Brian and I have had some interesting conversations the last couple of days. And that is, we, there's a preacher who recently got his $5,000 shoes, $5,000 pair of shoes. And I asked Brian if he was offended by my $400 ties. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm not offended by that, but I am offended by the fact that you pay $390 too much for the tie. <laughs> I've never bought a $400 tie. Let's just put that to rest real quickly. Miss Diana. I was just thinking about the people who want to convert a lot of people. And so to do that, they shorten the call, so to speak. Absolutely. Baptism is no longer, they don't even think about it. They read right over it because they have put the sinner's prayer and, and other phrases that they use and tell people that they're saved. So that, that makes the, the numbers go up. Absolutely. Very good point. Uh, the idea of watering down the truth. So could we gain a lot more people with the flick of a switch? And the, we all know the answer. Yes, we could, we could double the amount of people in here by providing people what they want to hear. Going back to the sermon uh, about six weeks ago, um, don't scratch that itch, which I thought was a really good one. Not that, all of, not that they're not all good, David. But that was good. Uh, Brother Jonathan. Uh, thank you, Miss Diana. That was, that was wonderful. So Jesus comments about the, uh, the Pharisees and a lot of the Jews, and this is a spirit that can be present in any age or among any people, where in Matthew 23, he says that there's these people that like respectful greetings, mm -hmm. this kind of honor for being called rabbi or teacher. And so they have this, feel like they have an exalted position because, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a, teacher and I've made quite a name for myself by going around teaching everywhere and Jesus says it's not going to be so among my people he says they need to be the ones who are looking to be servants and the one who thinks he's going to be the greatest he's uh, the lowest of all great point and I'm glad you went to Matthew 23 because Matthew 23 is like the perfect proof text for that right good okay so absolutely this can happen today and, it, and it's not just and I like what Miss Diana said. It's not just a matter of those who preach, those who stand in a pulpit. All of us who teach have the responsibility of teaching the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we can't water it down to, to put a feather in our cap. Look how many people I've gotten uh, saved so far. Uh, I love this phrase in verse uh, 17 where he says, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Um, why, why is it important to defend the gospel? I'm not, again, I'm not asking hard questions today. These are just easy ones. But why do we defend the gospel? Great many who would attack it and tear it down. Absolutely. The, the word I was looking for is the word that Brian used, attack. It is under attack. And the enemies will attack it. Because the gospel message is pure and perfect and complete. And people try to muddy the waters or water it down, um, delete it. It is under attack. So we are appointed for the defense of the gospel as well. And then the other point here, and then we'll go to verses 19 through uh, 20, is the gospel is preached um, and this is something that David kind of highlighted a minute or so ago, that even if from impure motives, if the gospel is still preached, Paul's saying, 
I'm glad for that. Verse 19 says, I'm going to rejoice. That's a key word for today because that's what we're talking about in our sermon a little bit later, this concept of rejoicing. He says, I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice, that whether in pretense or in truth, if Christ is preached, if that message gets across, that's what I want getting across, that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. All right, let's go ahead because our our time is going to to, uh, fleet away and read verses 19 through 20 of the text. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, or some versions use the word salvation, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So the first thing that, I, that jumped out to me is the first three words of that reading. For I know. Paul doesn't think. He doesn't suppose. He doesn't just hope. He knows. And it reminded me of 2 Timothy chapter 4, where one of the points that I've always tried to make and that's always been pointed out to me is where he says, I have fought the fight. I have uh, run the race. There's no doubt there's no uh, ambivalence. There's no, well, I think I've run the race. We are never to be overconfident in our salvation. But at the same time, we are never to be underconfident. And we need to be bold in saying, I know what's happening when I'm leaving this earth. I know where I'm going. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being there. Um, it will turn out for my deliverance or for my salvation. Uh, We referenced Romans chapter 8 recently in one of our studies, but in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Who wrote that in Romans chapter 8? Same same guy who understands the concept, not only in the lives of those with with whom he has fellowship and that he's trying to teach, but he says, that's true for me as well. Things are going to turn out okay. And, And of course, that's really... Um, uh, developed in the next couple of verses that we'll get to here in just a second. And then, uh, it should say, through your prayer, not though your prayer. Uh, this tells me that Paul believed in the importance of prayer. So you, you see a kind of a sermon outline here. That, that's the danger you get when you ask a preacher to teach a Bible class. Is he, he, everything gets seen through, through a tunnel of, of sermons. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. That's okay, but you can see how that would outline itself here. What is important about prayer? Everything is important about prayer. And I talked about that a little bit last week when in verses 3 through uh, verse 6, he says, I'm in every prayer being thankful for you, and I'm telling you that I am thankful for you and that I am prayerful for you and about you. Prayer is important to Paul because he says, imitate me as I also imitate the Savior as I imitate the Christ. Um, one other, th- two other things here, and then we'll go to verses, we'll open up for comments here, is uh, he says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, the NIV uses the term eagerly. So Paul says, I eagerly, uh, according to my eager expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also in Christ will be magnified in my body. And that magnification of Christ 
whether it be in life or death, that is our purpose. If you want to, to boil down what is the purpose of a Christian and you want to get it down to real brass tacks and get it down to you know, a couple of, of statements, magnifying Jesus Christ is at the heart of who we are and what we do. Any thoughts on uh, those verses before we get to verse 21? Okay, don't see any, but let's go, let's go ahead then to verses 21 through 23. He says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Um, I put up there, this is the idea of the saint's perspective. The perspective of a Christian is different than the perspective of those in the world. If in this life we only have hope, we are of all men the most pitiable or the most miserable. I referenced that last night. Life, if I live, what's my purpose? Jesus Christ, the anointed one. That's what my purpose is in living. And if I, de if I die, if I experience death, that's gain to me. Um, Note if you would, and I'm kind of rushing here because I know we're up against the clock here. Note if you would in verse 22 where he says, If I live on the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Paul was sure that there was fruit from his labor. We should be sure of that too. Again, not in an overconfident, egotistical way. Look at all the fruit of my labor because that's not good either. But Paul was so confident that he was doing good that he was uh, working to glorify God and magnify Jesus Christ, he says, I'm sure there's fruit from my labor. And I know that if I leave this earth, that there'll no longer be fruit from my labor. There'll be fruit from the labors of others. But I won't be able to do good for you at Philippi or at Colossae or other places that he's writing to at this particular point in his life. Um. When I was reading verse 23, I, and I think Mr. John went out to uh, handle the uh, people coming in a little bit uh, at this point. But I always think about uh, John Grimmett when I think about verse 23. Uh, and I think about uh, the point that he made that I had never really thought out before. You know, sometimes we talk about, well, he's, he's died, she's died, and he or she is in a better place. And John pointed out, technically, they're in a far better place. And I like that. So I, I stole that from John. I, he's not even in here, so he can't defend himself now that I stole it from him. But I like that. Far better uh, in verse 23. And then verse 24, uh, where he says, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. This would be true for the Philippians and others to whom Paul was writing or teaching in his final years. Other thoughts on those. Yes, Brother David. Uh, I really like verse 21, and, and I heard someone say this one time. If you were to write down, for me to live is blank and to die is gain. We could put a lot of things in that blank. For me to live is my wife or my husband or my children or my grandchildren or my job or my hobbies or whatever. But there's only one word you can put in that blank for the rest of that sentence to be true, and that's Christ. That's excellent. And there are, you're right, there are a lot of options in there. 
not, not superior options, but there are a lot of options. Anything else on those verses before we go to the last six verses of the text? Uh, Brother Roger over here and Brother David over uh, Toronto over here. Uh, David Toronto and then uh, Roger Reed coming up. very selfless instead of talking about you know my fruits and labors it's selfless to say if i'm here i can affect a whole lot more of a crowd if you will I like so that. Uh, it's it's selfless i like that um which and that's the embodiment of jesus that's the uh, way he conducted himself brother roger very quickly on the fruitful labor anytime you tell somebody about christ that's fruitful labor that's true. Uh, we plant, we water. Who gives the increase? The Lord. All right. Very good points. Okay, let's go ahead in our final, uh, looks like we've got about nine minutes here left on the clock. Verses 25. Let's read down through 30, and then we'll make a couple of uh, observations. Being confident of this. There's the confidence again. So being confident of this, I know, I, not I think, I know, that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, and to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Uh, obviously, verse 27, to me, 27, is, it jumps out as the big verse. They're all big verses. But the idea of having worthy conduct. What does that mean to have worthy conduct? We'll talk about that here in just a, a second or two. But first, I want to start with the idea of, of progress in the faith. Uh, note that Paul will continue with their progress. He says, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join faith. So, he says, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to continue to work with you until the day that I die. Now, that may be soon, but I'm going to continue to be there for you. Paul was not a fair-weather friend or a fair-weather uh, saint. He was with them through the thick and thin. He was with them so that they knew they could depend on him. Um, verses 27 through 30 is where I want to spend the rest of our time. Then we'll do some quick applications here. Um, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. What does that mean to you? And that's just, again, a, it's an easy question. Your conduct be worthy of the gospel. How does that strike you? sacrifice and the example that he provided for us. Excellent. Are we worthy of Jesus Christ? Uh, what's, what's gospel? It's the plan. It's the good news. It's this whole picture uh, like, like uh, uh, 
Jason quoted from there in John chapter 1. That's something that we are to be worthy of. What struck me is that if he says, have conduct worthy of the gospel, that tells me that it's possible to have conduct unworthy of the gospel. That's kind of frightening. So you mean I can walk unworthily to borrow from another passage? Yes, that's very possible to walk unworthily of the gospel. That's very possible. We have to make sure that we conduct ourselves well. Um, Paul closes the first chapter. He's not writing in chapter verse form. We, we, we get that. But he closes this first page or this first couple of paragraphs kind of where he begins. He starts by saying, I'm thankful that every time I remember you, every time I hear about you, and then he ends in verses 28, 29, and 30 saying, I'm thankful for you, but I don't want you to be terrified. I don't want you to be alarmed. He says, I want to hear of your affairs. And that reminded me of a, a recent study in Proverbs that reputations matter. A name matters. A good name is better than precious ointment or gold or silver. Um, so... Our reputations matter as well. And one of the things that, you know, is is striking is that when someone hears your name, whether that be your full name or maybe your last name, your family's name, whatever the case may be, what do they think about you? They think of integrity. They think of honesty. They think of uh, love for the Lord. They think of, what do they think of? Uh, We want our reputations to matter in the sense that when people hear about us, like Paul says, when I hear about you, I want to hear good things. That's what I want to hear uh, about you. Proof of perdition. For those of us that don't use the word perdition once a week, what does the word perdition mean? Or maybe you've got a different translation, a uh, different version there in, what is that, verse uh, 28. What does perdition mean? Destruction. Is a, is a synonym for that. Uh, I looked up the original word. The idea of ruin or to destroy it would be the uh, verb form of that, to destroy something. So he's saying here, don't be terrified of your adversaries, false teachers, uh, persecutors, whatever the case may be. Don't be afraid of them. It's proof of destruction. It's proof of ruin. But instead, it's about deliverance or salvation that comes from God himself. And then um, someone else mentioned this just a couple of days ago uh, as they were reading ahead. It's okay to read ahead, by the way. Uh, But they read ahead to verse 29. For to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to what? To suffer. We'll talk about that a little bit more in our sermon this morning as well. You mean it's been granted to me the privilege of suffering? Yeah. That's that's the privilege of being a Christian is that you get to suffer. And have mean things said about you. Maybe have your job taken away from you. Maybe have family members estranged from you because they no longer want to have anything to do with the truth. That's the privilege of being a Christian. Now we understand it's worth it because we're standing up for what is right. All right. Real quickly here because we've got about uh, two and a half minutes left here. Uh, key applications. I, I came up with five. 
uh, that I want to just spend uh, two minutes on. One, only you can actually defend the gospel. I thought about Smokey the Bear a couple days ago when I was writing this. Only you can actually defend the gospel. It's up to each of us. Number two, opportunities to teach come in odd places. The palace guard, the police officer, uh, random people you meet, people at work who you don't suppose are going to be interested. And the next thing you know, they are interested. Number three, always magnify Jesus. Never magnify yourself. And that's hard sometimes. You know, because you feel good when you finally have talked to someone about Jesus. You feel good about uh, when someone has accepted your invitation to uh, study with them. Uh, feel, oh, I must be doing the right thing. It's not about me. It's about him. Four, it's vital that we are united, going back to verse 27, and never be terrified, always be brave. Anything in the last uh, 30 seconds or so? Yes, Brother David. And right there in verse 27, it says, with one mind striving together. And that's the same Greek word there, striving together, that's used to describe a team of athletes, athletes that are competing to win a contest. And so you think about how, how much effort every team member has to put in and how, how they have to remain focused on a singular mm -hmm. goal. Absolutely. And when they, when they lose that focus, when they start focusing on themselves or whatever, they're no longer of one mind and they're just not going to do as well. And I think that's just a good description of, of us as a congregation of how we of one mind Absolutely. should be striving together for the gospel of Christ. I like that very much. All right, thank you all for your time. Thank you for those uh, who are listening at home and for those in the parking lot. And uh, we appreciate your attention.